Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Jamie, you know, we are in 2022, December of 2022. This is the last Q&A segment of the year. We've been doing this for two years now. I two know. Two years. Crazy. It's kind of crazy. Is it three? Wait, two? 2020, 21, 20. Oh my gosh. Three years. See, <laughs> I can't even do the math. Oh you my gosh. You had me worried. I was like, oh, did I miss a year? <laughs> well, <laughs> I- But you I, missed a year. <laughs> I did miss a year. Oh my goodness. That's just where my brain is these days. Um, but I've been super excited because it almost just feels like, I think we've gotten feedback from people where they just want us to do Q and A's for an entire segment. And I think oh, that goodness. maybe in, maybe in 2023, we could do that every once in a while. Let's just have like Q and A segments. What do you think? Maybe so. Maybe so. It's just that it stumped the chump and I just feel like a big chump the whole time. So it'd be like <laughs> an, an episode of me just being a chump. Yeah, that's it. People love that. It's fine. <laughs> of course. <laughs> All right. So for the questions that we have, uh, the last three questions of the year um, are from emails just all over. I mean, we've got people from Texas, someone from Ireland. The other person didn't tell us where they were from, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so we'll just go down the list. And so the first question that we have for today, nectar flows of mesquite honey and cotton crystallize really fast. Is there any way to prevent that? So I guess, is there any way to prevent any type of honey just from crystallizing quickly? Um, would they mix out with other honeys? Should they pull the super when the moisture content is above 18%? You know, what do you recommend for honeys that are typically going to crystallize too fast? I love this question. I don't think I've ever been asked this before. I usually get asked what to do once the honey's crystallized, not something, you know, to do how to prevent it, but it's, it's very interesting question. Okay. So there's a couple of things that you can do to kind of get around this, but let me just make sure that everybody who's listening understands what we're talking about. When honey is ripe, when it's between about 15.5 and 18.5% water. If it's above 18.5% water, it's prone to fermentation. If it's below 15.5% water, it's prone to granulation. And so the way to think about this is that honey is a super saturated sugar solution. Four S's in a row. It's hard to say quickly. Super saturated sugar solution, which basically means it's a liquid when it really wants to be a solid. So there's a lot of sugar in honey. And the lower the moisture content, the higher the likelihood that those sugars are going to come out of solution and solidify. So that happens a lot when honey is below 15.5% water. So the good news, we call this process granulation. So the good news about granulation is it's completely reversible. All you have to do is heat the honey slightly, you don't want to boil it, but you heat it and it reliquifies the honey. 
So all of that is is good. And for most consumers, that's okay. Now, you didn't ask specifically about above 18.5% moisture and fermentation. Fermentation is not reversible. That's why you want to make sure and extract only when you're below 18.5%. But that's another question for another day. So just like you imply, you said specifically mesquite and cotton, lots of different honeys are more prone to granulation than our other honeys. And I grew up in an area in Georgia where the honey that my bees made was prone to granulation. So this is something I had to deal with a lot myself. So there's a couple of ways that commercial beekeepers deal with it. Number one, they might do exactly what you suggest, which is mix this kind of honey that naturally has a lower moisture content with a honey that has a slightly higher moisture content. I'm not saying mix it with honey that's over 18.5 or 19.0 or whatever percent, but it would be like if you know that your honey's prone to granulation, you you dilute it a bit with a honey that's kind of in the 17 to 18% range, right? So that's that's one option. So you can try to mix it with a honey that's got a higher moisture content, and then you could test it to see if that actually got you where you needed to be. But even still, some of those honeys are prone uh, to granulation still. So some commercial beekeepers also will heat their honey after they extract it. So they're not heating it again, you know, very hot. You don't want to, to scorch honey, but they'll heat it not for the purpose of pasteurizing it, but for the purpose of getting out any sugar crystals that are already mm -hmm. in there. Because those folks who make creamed honey, and creamed honey is basically controlled granulation, those people who make creamed honey, one of the first steps of making creamed honey is seeding the honey with crystals, little sugar crystals that cause it to come out of the liquid and, and granulate. So by, by the process of heating your honey a little bit right after it's extracted, it will dissolve a lot of those crystals and slow the granulation process. So that's kind of the second step or second option, which is, which is heating honey. A third option is just, is to know in advance that this is going to happen, which is what I did when I was a kid. And you can actually buy stickers from the beekeeping equipment supply companies that say, you know, all honeys are prone to granulation if the moisture content's low mm -hmm. granulation, blah, blah, blah. And it explains to the consumer what to do if the honey granulates. So I bought those stickers put them on all of my jars so that if the consumer who would purchase one of my jars of honey saw that my honey granulated, they would know that it's a normal process and know what to do right. about it. Right. right. And then the fourth option that you have is to take advantage of the fact that it wants to granulate and use it for creamed honey production. Mm -hmm. And creamed honey is an amazing product if you can do it well. And if your honey's prone to granul granulation, that might actually be a, a unique niche and market for you is just to take advantage of it and, and make a play on it and, and go in the creamed honey business rather than trying to keep it liquid honey on the store shelf. That's pretty cool. You know, I've never had mesquite or cotton honey. Have you had those? So Amy, it's so crazy that you're asking me this question right now. Of course, the 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 listeners don't have the added benefit of knowing when we're recording these episodes. It happens to be 7th of December, 2022, when we're recording this. And just last week, I was at the American Honey Producers Association meeting in Tucson, Arizona. And mesquite is a, a, a plant that grows in the desert southwest in the U.S. 
And I've had the great, great, great fortune of being able to visit the Carl Hayden Bee Research Laboratory, which is mm -hmm. one of our USDA laboratories. Uh, last week, I was able to take a tour of that and meet with the scientists there. And as one of their gifts to us, they gave us a jar of mesquite honey. And guess what, Amy? You brought it to the lab? I brought, no, I took it <gasps> to my house, Dang but it. it was fully granulated, just That's like so this question. And I took it home and my family cannot stop eating it, even granulated. So the whole time I was thinking this would make a great creamed honey. <laughs> that is so funny. Well, you're going to yes, have to I've bring it. it into the lab so we can all try it as well. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <I've> <laughs> Unless your be. kids eat it all. That's okay <laughs> it might, too. It might be gone before I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the second question that we have, um, an individual is wondering about grafted queens compared to swarm cell queens where the egg has been naturally laid in a large queen cell. Um, so are they physically the same? You know, what is the difference between the two? And, you know, what do you think the life expectancy is on a grafted queen compared <laughs> to a swarm cell queen? I can only laugh about this because this has been a, one of the most popular series of questions. So so right. obviously I'm answering questions here on two bees in a podcast, but I also answer questions for the American Bee Journal in the classroom section. And I get, I've gotten this question so mm -hmm. much recently. And I think we've even talked about it on the podcast a few times and it was all due to me making a statement some months and months and months ago about, you know, queens can't lay queen eggs or worker eggs. They only lay female eggs and drone eggs. And then someone actually sent me a refereed manuscript and said, well, Jamie, actually someone recently showed that the eggs that queens lay into queen cells are slightly bigger. And there's some, um, uh, in result of this, the queens tend to be bigger, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the, the basic premise is this is the first evidence, maybe, that there's this thing called a queen egg and a worker egg. Now, every all of you don't need to get excited. Clearly, we can graft, quote, worker eggs and make queens from them. And, and I'm not even saying that it's conclusive that there is a queen egg or a worker egg. Right now, what we know is that there's some evidence that queens lay slightly larger eggs into queen cells than they do into worker cells. Okay, so that has everybody thinking, which is what's produced this flow of questions that has come my way, both through the podcast as well as through the American Bee Journal. And my answer is always the same, which is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Because we, we only really have this kind of first study that shows this. And what they, again, were able to show is that queens might lay these slightly bigger eggs and queen cells and that the queens that result from these themselves might be slightly bigger and have some of these physiological characteristics that are make them slightly different from um, queens that might be produced from eggs laid in worker cells. So what I would say is while all of these questions are fantastic, and the, and the questions, for example, are how would a grafted queen that we graft from a worker cell compared to a queen grafted from a swarm cell? What's the longevity difference between the two? What if you graft larvae that are this age versus that age? And just on and on and on. All of these are fantastic questions. We just don't know the answer mm -hmm. to them yet because this is such a new thing. And I feel like um, people need to repeat the study, number one, to see if the original finding is true. You know, if it's universal across all the places that this is that this can be tested. And then number two, if it is true, what are the implications? All these questions right. are relevant. You know, if we graft queens from worker cells, which is what the whole queen industry does, and versus um, getting queens to lay directly into queen cells, do we produce better or worse queens, longer live or shorter live queens, queens that produce more or fewer offspring? Mm -hmm. All of those questions, Amy, are still on the table and we don't have answers for them because this is such a new finding. 
I know. I kind of just think about that, you know, like we're talking about just the size of the queen when she emerges, but does a bigger queen mean that she's going to be a better layer, right? Or that she's going to lay eggs that are healthier, or like, is it going to make the colony just overall stronger? Who knows? And Great so, questions. yeah, there's so mm. many questions, I think, to that. All right. So for the third question that we have is what can urban beekeepers do to source their bees with pollinator plants when populated shopping areas have non-pollinator landscaping? So this is actually a, a great question. I guess when I used to live in Orlando, there would be, well, I guess there'd be a mix of pollinator and non-pollinator plants, but you know, what can urban beekeepers do with this? Uh, can companies be approached to help implement native plants or pollinator plants in general? You know, what is that conversation? Do you think that looks like? So this is the right question for the right time. And it's, it's the reason it's the right question is because there's a huge push exactly in this direction. Let's just think about it from a practical standpoint, right? A, a store in the United States, in the UK, in Australia, in Thailand, wherever you're listening to us from, a store is going to be built here, right? Wherever this here is, they are almost always going to add landscaping of some sort. And it's usually generic landscaping that kind of grows well in the area that the store is being built or the facilities being built or the church is being built or the school is being built, whatever's being built, right? And so they're almost always going to landscape. And since they're almost always going to landscape, why would they landscape in things that are useless to pollinators? Why not Why not landscape in things that are useful to pollinators? Well, that that is something that really is catching hold, not only in the U.S., but really around the world. You know, there's B-City USA that really champions mm -hmm. that here in the U.S. And they they have a, a little spinoff um uh, effort called Bee Campus USA, where they're trying to get college campuses to play, plant pollinator-friendly plants, and and uh, a lot of those being native plants rather than other plants. And so, so yes, you you are asking specifically, can you approach companies to help them implement native plant? Yes, you can not only do that, but you can approach your city or your county or your regional council to say, hey, look, you are the ones who are mandating that when these new stores or schools or churches or whatever are being built that they have to landscape, why not mandate that they landscape with pollinator-friendly plants? Um, if you live in the U.S., you can work with your county extension offices to try to get mm -hmm. to the right people in your cities and in your counties, those right people being um, um uh, planning area, uh, planning people, you know, zoning folks, people who make these decisions on what must happen in certain areas. So absolutely, you can do this. And furthermore, there are groups in lots of areas. I mentioned B City USA and B Campus USA that that do this. They would love to work with you. Other groups like this would love to work with beekeepers to make their urban areas pollinator friendly. I mean, a lot of skyscrapers are, are planting green spaces on the on the upper roof. I mean, there's just so many ways to do this. I, I think about when I go to cities all around the world, they're all quite green. There's plants, trees, shrubbery, flowers right. everywhere. So why not plant things best that are native, that, that are going to live and thrive well in the area, but second, that are attractive and useful to pollinators. So absolutely, you can approach these companies, you can approach your county extension offices if you're here in the U.S., you can approach beekeeping organizations, native plant societies, you can approach 
zoning folks. There's just a lot of folks you can go to to try to get this really um, motivated and moving forward in where in the area you live. And I think it's a worthwhile cause. Absolutely. Okay. So typically we're, we're done after these three questions. And then this thing I wanted to bring up was the fact that, well, I guess just first, thanks so much for all of your questions this year. We've had so many emails and inquiries on social media and questions. And to be quite honest, Jamie, we were just overwhelmed with questions and we were not able to get to all of them. And so um, if we if we were not able to answer your question on air or, you know, if we have not responded to you, one, I sincerely apologize to please send us an email if we haven't done so, so we can get you back, you know, towards the top of the list, because we just have, I don't know, how many questions do we have, Jamie, just on our spreadsheet? Like, oh hundreds. gosh, uh, yeah, it's I crazy. look at it. It's really intimidating, frankly. And I always feel bad, Amy, because there's so many people asking so many good questions. It's just that when we answer three questions an episode, we'll, we'll just never get through them all. It's really hard. And we're really touched that you guys want to ask us questions. So, so please keep sending the questions. We'll do our best to get through as many as we can. Absolutely. So we hope you have a really great holiday. Um, we will see you all in the new year. We'll continue to be in a podcast through 2023. And we're excited to share what we've got in store for you for the upcoming year. Thank you for listening to two bees in a podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at UF Honeybee Lab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Boo. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Boo and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening and see you next week.